Well, we're glad you're here tonight. Thanks for coming out. We're in study number five tonight, how to study and interpret the Bible. And before we get into this study tonight, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your people who've come out tonight. Thank you for people that are interested in studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible. Lord, that is a blessing to see. It's a pretty good crowd out tonight. Thank you for that. We pray you continue to bless this study and always bless truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is kind of a little historical perspective before we actually get to the question. And we're starting on page 20 tonight. The new notes have been run because I've expanded the notes. That's why. So this is kind of a trial by error. So you want to be on page the new notes, page 20 tonight. When the New Testament was written, it was written from about the year 8045 to 8095, somewhere in there. And the first manuscripts that were written were primarily written in Greek, and they were passed around to the churches, and a church would get a copy of a manuscript, and then what they would do is they would make a copy of it, and they'd pass it on to the church. Well, about 140 A.D., a guy by the name of Marcion, who was a real quirky heretic, he came out with a New Testament that included part of the book of Luke and about 10 of Paul's epistles, And that prompted Christians at that time to figure out some guidelines. They called it a canon, rules or measuring rod. It caused them to figure out a way to determine which books were inspired and which were not. Now, there's a reason for this background that I'm giving you before our study proper tonight. So in AD 382 to 384, Jerome, he decided to translate the New Testament Greek manuscripts into Latin. Now that took us to, in history, about the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is a time period of about a thousand years between about 8450 or 500 and 8500. And during that time, Europe lacked a real literacy, especially when it came to the Bible. So the Roman Catholic priest interpreted the Bible for the people. And they taught the people that they were the only ones qualified to do that. Well, after the Bible was translated into Latin, the priests were some of the few who actually knew Latin well because the Bible was not available to the average person. The priests became the authority and they started making up things that weren't even in the Bible and the people didn't know what to think or believe. In fact, the priests actually downplayed the reading of the Bible for the average person. That even existed recently in the Catholic Church. They downplayed the reading of the Bible by the average person. They discouraged people from trying to read it, even those who did know Latin. Now, the three main languages in Europe at the time, during those Middle Ages, were a middle type of English, French, and Latin. Now, as we already mentioned in our previous studies, in the 1300s, John Wycliffe He got fed up with it, so he went to work on trying to translate the Bible from Latin into English, and he did it. And he believed that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language. And then we get to the time of the Reformation. We get to the 1500s, and during that time of the Reformation, William Tyndale went to work on translating the Bible into English from the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And then in the 1536 range, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. Now time progresses forward. You get into the United States. And as we come into the United States, you have theological institutions that are founded, many of them, 
took the position that in order to have true knowledge of the scriptures, you needed to be trained in Greek and Hebrew languages. In fact, Dr. Chiefer felt that it was essential that somebody learn those types of languages. Now, the idea behind that was that in order to have a true full meaning of a text, you actually had to know what the text was saying and you had a true knowledge of the text and those languages were critical to having true knowledge of the text. Now, later on, I'm going to try to objectively analyze that point, not tonight, but I will try to objectively analyze the point as objectively as I possibly can. I have no axe to grind on the subject. But that does bring us to tonight's question. That does lead us to tonight's questions and tonight's study, and that is, can the Bible be properly interpreted by the average Christian? Another way to ask the question is, would a believer have to go to Bible college or seminary and study biblical languages in order to accurately interpret the scriptures? That's another way we could ask that question. Or, could a layperson properly interpret the Bible? Could the church actually teach the average Christian how to study and interpret the Bible? And, could we actually expect that the average Christian would be able to study and interpret the Bible? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Yes. But I'm not just basing that on what I feel. I'm basing that on about eight key presuppositions and observations. Now, the first observation is the Bible is the inspired word of God. I want to start at that point. The Bible is the inspired word of God. We learn from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And the whole basis for this study is based on that presupposition. Donald J. Campbell, in his foreword to Dr. Roy Zuck's book, Basic Bible Interpretation, says, Since the Bible was given to reveal truth and not obscure it, God surely intends that we understand it. The Bible is inspired by God and says it's profitable. It's profitable. And if it's to be profitable, you need to understand it. So we would just conclude based on that, it's not only possible to interpret the scriptures, it's profitable to do so. Now the Bible is like no other book in the world because it's a book that has been given to us from God himself. That's what that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And then if you go to 2 Peter 1.21, we read that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You can start on page one of the Bible and you can see that it keeps repeating the fact that it is the word of God. In fact, in Genesis 1, and God said, that clearly indicates it's claiming it is the word of God. And because this book originally was written by humans but inspired by God, there are six realities that we accept and believe and defend, which is all part of reverencing the word of God that we think you can't understand. The first reality is we believe the Bible is inerrant, which means it does not contain any errors. In those original writings, the Bible was completely without any possible error. Now, every now and then in these times, you come to a discrepancy in a manuscript, and there is some human failure that takes place. A guy is hand-copying a manuscript, and he's going very carefully copying it, and the word is soup, S-O-U-P, but it's late at night, and he's copying that in a manuscript, and he goes S-U-O-P. 
instead of S-O-U-P. We do that stuff. I do it, and I have word spell check on my computer and still misspell words at times. So that kind of thing did happen. But what we're saying here is it doesn't really affect the context. And usually you can go to some authority and determine exactly what happened at that particular text of Scripture, and it doesn't affect meaning at all. So we believe that the Bible is inerrant. It doesn't contain errors. Secondly, we believe the Bible is infallible. This book is incapable of errors. So the Bible is incapable of errors. Thirdly, we believe the Bible is authoritative. This book is the true authority base for what we believe and all we believe. Now, if that's true, it's the authority base for what we believe and all we believe, it would stand to reason that we would be able to understand it. If this is the authority for what it is that we're going to believe, the logical conclusion would be, well, we as God's people should be able to understand this book, study it and understand it. Fourthly, we believe the Bible has divine unity. This book will not contradict itself when all is studied. It will prove to have a unity concerning any subject in any text. Martin Luther and John Calvin said scripture will interpret itself and multiple passages will ultimately reveal what the truth is on any subject. And we must always remember this interpretive principle. Obscure passages are to be interpreted by plain passages. Always interpret obscure passages by plain passages. If you have, for example, 150 to 200 passages of Scripture that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And there are that many that actually say that. By faith you're saved, believe on the Lord. And then you have this one oddball verse that appears to say something other than that, you don't throw away the 150 or 200 verses and take the one oddball statement. You have to study the thing and say, well, now I need to understand what this statement is because I know this. It's not saying the opposite of 150 or 200 passages. So we always interpret obscure passages by plain passages, and there will always be a divine unity in various inspired books of the Bible. Let's take the subject of prophecy for a moment as an illustration. The prophetic portions of the Bible will always have a divine unity to them. In other words, prophetic passages and books of the Bible will correspond in a unified way to other prophetic passages that deal with the same theme. You can study a book like Daniel. You can study a book like Matthew, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Revelation. They will all have a prophetic unity and symmetry to them. For example, rapture passages will coordinate with other rapture passages. And you're going to find rapture passages in the New Testament. You're not going to find rapture passages in the Old Testament because the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Then you have the great tribulation passages. Great tribulation passages will correspond with other great tribulation passages. What we're saying here is the Bible has a divine unity to it. Now, the fifth reality is we believe the Bible has supernatural depth. This book comes from the mind of God. So that would immediately tell us this is just not going to be a simplistic Dick and Jane book. I mean, this is a book that's coming from the mind of God. Things are going to be deep and complex. The Bible's rooted in the infinite wisdom of God. Flip over to Romans 11 for a second. Romans chapter 11. And I want to show you a couple of verses from Romans chapter 11. And I want you to notice verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. And here's Paul's take on what he's writing here concerning the things he just got done writing. 
In Romans 11:33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Now that tells us right there that this Bible is going to be a deep book that's going to have to be studied carefully. We will certainly acknowledge that. I mean, the Bible can captivate a child, but it can intimidate the greatest scholars in the world. And as we mentioned before, even Peter said there are some things hard to understand. So this is just not a simple book to unravel. But because it's not simple, doesn't mean the average believer can't understand it or unravel it. The sixth reality is we believe the Bible is absolutely true. Nothing in this book can be false. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for just a second. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I draw your attention to verse 4, verse 4, 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now that tells you right there, God wants people knowing truth. He wants people to be saved. He wants people coming to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if he wants people coming to the knowledge of the truth, it would stand to reason they can read the truth and understand the truth. I mean, otherwise, they can't come to the knowledge of the truth. And since God is a God who cannot lie, the Bible is a book that cannot lie on any subject or theme. For example, if the Bible says that an axe head actually floated to the top of water, it has to be the truth because it comes from a God who cannot lie. That story is found in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1-7. to if the Bible says that Jesus walked on top of water, it has to be true. When the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead, it has to be true. Nothing in the scripture can be false because all scripture is the inspired word of God and is absolutely true. So based on those realities, on the fact that God is a God who cannot lie, he wants people to know truth and come to an understanding of truth, our conclusion would be, since this is the inspired word of God, we admit it's going to be deep. And it's not going to be just simplistic, but we also admit he would want people to be able to understand it. That's why he inspired the word. And that's the first reason why we think the word of God is understandable by average people. Now, the second observation we make is God did put his word in written form. Now, that's an obvious fact, but it's a critical fact. God's word is written. When you open the Bible, what you do see, there are written words on a page. And when you open the Bible, you look at it and you say, well, there are written words there that I can read. So we do have God's word in written existence in our own language. And Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says that includes every single word. Now, one logical question is this, why did God go to all the trouble to actually see to it that we have his word in print. Why would God go to all the trouble to put his word in written form? And the obvious answer to that is so humans would have it. And the obvious answer to that question is he went to the trouble to see to it that his word is in written form so humans would have it, they could read it, they could understand it. And by virtue of the fact that God's word is in written form for humans, then we know that he will use words. If he's writing for humans, 
Because we've looked at language. You read stuff. If he's writing for humans, he's going to use grammar, language, syntax. He's going to form sentences. They're going to be logical sentences. He's going to have paragraphs. And so then to analyze what a meaning of an actual text is, we're going to have to analyze those kinds of things if we're going to come to terms with a true understanding of the text. But by virtue of the fact that he put it in writing, we would conclude he put it in writing because he thinks his people can read it and understand it and get to apply it. Now the third observation that is really, I think, a significant observation to answering this question, could the average Christian interpret the Bible, is God did use humans to write his word. He did use humans to write his word. I think that's an important point that we don't want to overlook. Uh, J. Robertson McQuilkin said, when God created individuals in his own likeness, he created them with the ability to communicate. Human language is a gift from God. And human language is a gift that actually means one person may communicate with another person. That's what language does. It enables us to communicate with each other. Now, when God gave his word, he used humans to write it, and he did not use humans to write and communicate his word to angels. So he obviously had men, humans, write his word with other humans in mind. And we know that God used real humans to write in a real human language, and the real human language was the language available to the people at the time that they wrote. And so he used humans to write to other humans to communicate truth. He oversaw what they wrote. He said, I actually oversaw the whole process so that every word that ended up in the word of God was in fact inspired by me. But he did use normal type of human guys to write his word. All kinds of different guys. Now this is where I think our doctrine, systematic theology class comes into play. I mean that Mr. Kelly teaches every Sunday. That doctrine of bibliology is extremely important. It's more than just something to kill time in Sunday school. I mean, this is very valuable, and you learn these kinds of things. I mean, he used a lot of different types of men to write his word. He used fishermen like Peter, James, and John. He used political leaders and kings like David and Solomon. He used a peasant farmer like Amos. He used tax collector like Matthew, medical doctor like Luke. You've got a religious scholar like Paul but when you look at that whole group of guys that God used to write his word, you would conclude, well, he did use all types of men to write. And the reason that he had them write, so they could accurately communicate truth to other humans. That's why he had humans write, to accurately communicate truth to humans. Now, this is a very important point because what that means is humans wrote this book in a linguistic way that books are written for other humans to read. They're writing in intelligible language. Those writers obviously had a message to communicate, and they wrote it in such a way that others could read it. And I submit to you that when God had these guys write the Word of God, they are not primarily writing the Word of God for scholars. They're writing the Word of God for common, ordinary people. In fact, I want to show you a text of Scripture that I think proves the point. Go over to John chapter 20, if you would, please. John chapter 20, and in John chapter 20 and verse 31, notice John makes a statement about things written. I'll start at verse 30, John 20, 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here's a statement in Scripture that the things that have been written have been written so people will believe in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, if you're writing things and their whole eternal destinies at stake in them reading what's been written, God says, I'm writing this for average people. They can understand it. Now, because... This is a book written by humans. We know that humans do write and they follow normal grammatical ways of writing in their particular language. These writers used words and sentences and they used paragraphs. They followed the normal rules of grammar and language at the time they wrote. So as we come to analyze passages down the road with some of the stuff we're going to give you, we're going to have to take a look at some of the grammar and some of the things that they're writing and how they're developing sentences. I mean, we're going to actually analyze that. But that's how normal humans write. They write something that's understandable for other humans to read. Normal humans write something that's designed to make sense for another human to read. Most humans don't write nonsense Unless, of course, you are a politician in Washington, then you're good at that. But one of the basic presuppositions about God is that God is a God of sense, not nonsense. So if you read something that says the man went for a ride in his car, the man went for a ride in his car, you don't step back and understand that to mean, well, the man was carried away by a demon-possessed vehicle. You take the words, what was written there? The man went for a ride in his car. You take it at face value. If we write, I decided to take a course in how to study and interpret the Bible, I decided to take a course in how to study and interpret the Bible, we would expect the reader to interpret those words in exactly what they meant. We would not expect the reader to say, well, what that really means is that the person decided to change his course in life in order to study and give interpretive meaning to the social and business world and the psychological world. You would never expect someone to interpret it that way. We would expect someone to read the statement, interpret the statement, that this person decided to take a course in how to study and interpret the Bible. So it would be understandable in a normal structure of sentence the meaning is precisely what it says. That's what the words mean. It conveys the point. And that's the way the Bible is to be approached. So when a biblical writer like Luke or Zechariah says, for example, that the Lord is going to return to Jerusalem, specifically to the Mount of Olives, then we read those words and we say, you know, that's what he would expect the reader to think. He would expect the reader to think that the Lord is going to return to Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. He does not expect the people to say, you know what that really means, like they say in Utah, it really means he's going to return to Salt Lake City. You see, we're talking about humans writing in normal human language, which would mean we understand it in the normal language that they write. When the biblical writer like John says that Jesus Christ will have a reign of 1,000 years on earth, or he says there was 144,000 that were sealed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, then the writer would expect when they read that, they're not going to say, we don't know what that means. And we don't know what the number means. And we don't know what the group even is. 
could be the church when it says 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that would be crazy interpretation, not based on how you normally interpret something written by a human. That's the point we're trying to drive home here. Humans write in language for understandable purposes, and they wrote to make sense, not nonsense. Now, the fourth observation that we make is that God used men to write his word so his people could read it. Go over to 2 Corinthians 1 for just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to verse 13. This is a really interesting text. 2 Corinthians 1.13. For we write, here's Paul, we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Now, it cannot be much clearer than that. And Paul says, we write so people can understand. That's why we're writing. How much clearer can it be? We're writing so that people can read this and people can understand this. And again, we come back to this. God's whole point in putting his word into written form is so his people could read it. It's written in a normal human language for normal humans to read. We know that a man was made in the image of God. We know that every single believer has the spirit of God indwelling him or her. And that spirit's work, and we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. Well, how does the spirit play a role in all of this? But we know that that spirit is a guide that's guiding people into all truth. We also know from the New Testament that every believer is a priest unto God. Certainly one of the responsibilities of a priest was to understand the scriptures. So if every believer has the Holy Spirit in him or her, and every believer is a priest unto God, we would say, well, our conclusion is every believer certainly would have the right to be able to study and understand the scriptures. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he writes, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And he didn't qualify and say, just the brethren who are the smart people and the scholars. He said, you have this read to all the brethren. So by virtue of the fact that God's word can be read by humans, we conclude it can be understood by humans. Average, ordinary people, average, ordinary people may read and understand the word of God. And we'll try to give you tools to help fine-tune that in this study. Now, the fifth observation is God challenges his people to read his word. You've got that text in Psalm 103 where the person was challenged to meditate on the scriptures day and night. So you're, obviously you can't meditate on something you can't read and understand. So he challenges the average person to do that. You have that statement where Paul said concerning Timothy there in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the scriptures were designed to make you wise. These are the scriptures you've known from a child that can make you wise. So obviously if a child can be made wise by the scriptures, we understand that certainly is something that's understandable. In Colossians 4.16, Paul writes, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. In that one verse, Paul challenges people to read God's word three times. And the word read, anagonosko, means not just to read it, but read it, recognize, and knowing and understanding what it means. He's telling people in the church, read it, understand it, and know what it means. What is actually given here 
is the word of God, and when God gave his word, and then he challenges people to read and understand his word, you must conclude any person who's going to church should be able to read it and understand it. And when we analyze the Bible, we see a lot of challenges in the word of God to read the word of God that's given to the people of God. I mean, in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, have this letter read to all the brethren. You've got 1 Timothy chapter 4 there where give serious attention to the reading of scriptures. So we conclude from this that God has made an assumption that when I give my written word, it's possible for people to hear it, understand it, and apply it. It's possible for them to truly come to understand what is written. Average, ordinary people going to church can clearly and carefully and accurately understand the word of God and apply it to their own lives. Now, the sixth observation is God does challenge his people to apply and obey his word. Now, how can you challenge God's people to apply and obey the word if you know you put something in existence that you know no one can understand? I mean, how can you expect them to apply it and obey it if they don't understand it? And in that 2 Thessalonians 3.14 verse, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Well, Paul expected the word of God not only to be accurately understood, but accurately applied. And he said there are some people you don't even want to associate with. I mean, if they're not going to take the word of God seriously, don't have anything to do with them. Don't associate with them. Now, if you're going to take the word of God seriously, you'd have to be able to read it and understand it in order to understand it at that level. And over and over again, this admonition is given both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The assumption is that people can read the word, they can understand the word, they can apply the word, they can obey the word. As we've already previously said, obedience to truth is a key to grasping more truth. So if we're to grasp more truth and we're to grow into more truth and we're to please the Lord, then we must be able to grow more in our understanding of the scriptures. The assumption we have to make there, the presupposition that we make here is that God expects the average person to be able to get real serious and more serious about understanding the scriptures. Now, the seventh observation we make is God challenges his people to defend his word. Peter says, we are to give or be able to give a defense to everyone who would ask us the reason of the hope that's within us. And to do that, to be able to defend the word of God, you have to have knowledge of the word of God. There's a statement that Paul makes to Titus in Titus chapter 1 when he says there are these empty talkers, empty talkers in the world of religion. And he said, their mouths must be shut. You must silence them. Well, in order to silence them, you have to know truth so you can spot what's not true. And then you have to be able to point it out. Then you have to be able to actually show them where they're wrong. I mean, that's what you have to be able to do. So the assumption of the challenge is that if we are to be able to give a defense, and if we are to be able to silence someone, The obvious assumption that God makes is, I've given you my word, I expect you to have such an understanding of it that you're able to carry out that assignment, that you're able to do that. So that would then lead us to the conviction that every single believer 
would certainly have the ability with the Spirit of God and a careful analysis of the Scriptures to be able to do that. And the eighth observation that we make is God has given his Holy Spirit to every believer, so every believer does have the potential to interpret it and understand it. I'd like you to go to John 14, if you would, please. John 14. Now, we'll talk about this, Lord willing, next Wednesday night, so uh, we won't spend a lot of time here on this point. But in John 14, 26, just have that down there. John 14, 26, we read, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then if you flip over to chapter 16, And verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, he's talking to certainly his disciples and telling them, when you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to be led into truth, and you'll be able to remember the things you need to write. And I get that, but there's an application here to every single believer who has the Holy Spirit within them, they have the potential of certainly grasping the truth that they wrote. They put it in writing, human language, in writing. Therefore, every single believer has the potential of grasping it. Dr. Roy Zuck writes, its interpretation is not in the hands of an elite few scholars. God's Spirit is involved in the writing process He's involved in the lives of every believer, and therefore we conclude that every believer has the potential of understanding the scriptures. So based on those eight observations, we conclude if we meet the qualifications, if we're after truth, and we are asking the Lord to let us understand the truth, and we're responding to the truth that we know, then we would say it certainly is possible for the average Christian to properly interpret Scripture. In fact, that's what God wants his people to do. God wants his people to carefully and accurately understand his word. Now, that does not mean that average Christians will do this, but they would have the potential of doing this. In fact, I would say probably most won't do this because they're not given to this kind of intensity in focusing on studying the scriptures. It speaks highly of you who are coming out to this study because as we continue on, we're going to get into some pretty technical type of things that will enable our tools and skills to be honed. Well, our time is gone for tonight. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.